Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Welcome to the fourth annual John Wilmerding Symposium on American Art, a tribute to David C. Driscoll. I'm Kaywin Feldman, Director of the National Gallery of Art. Our symposium this year is held in partnership with the David C. Driscoll Center for the Study of the Visual Arts and Culture of African Americans and the African Diaspora at the University of Maryland College Park and Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture. We are joined to honor Dr. Driscoll, one of the world's leading authorities on African American art, who passed away in April at the age of 88 from complications of COVID-19. Dr. Driscoll was a beloved friend of the National Gallery of Art, who held the distinction of being the only speaker in the museum's history to present on separate occasions as an artist, collector, curator, and scholar. His first invitation to present at the gallery was in 1968, and he last spoke with Curly Holton as part of their Living Legacy Tour in the fall of 2019. He was a beloved teacher and mentor who dedicated much of his career to advancing the work of others. His legacy in the field of American art is profound. This special symposium, the gallery's first virtual symposium, includes a variety of new and live pre-recorded content that engages aspects of Dr. Driscoll's career not generally discussed or published. All the material, including a keynote address by Julie L. McGee, a studio visit with Curly Holton, and a performance by Jefferson Pinder is available on the symposium website. Please be sure to visit. I'm delighted that our symposium partners, the Driscoll Center's director, Curly Holton, and Skowhegan's director, Sarah Workney, both appear as part of this evening's panel. Sarah will moderate the discussion and Curly will join the artist panel with Lyle Ashton Harris, Keith Morrison, Mary Lovelace O'Neill, Jefferson Pinder, Frank Stewart, and Carrie Mae Weems. I can't wait to hear them. Scholars Valerie Casal Oliver, Julie L. McGee, and Alvia J. Wardlaw will join us after the panel to answer questions submitted by those of you who registered for the Zoom webinar. I want to thank my colleagues at the gallery, the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture, the Driscoll Center for organizing this special tribute. On their behalf, I would also like to acknowledge Dorit Yaron, Deputy Director of the Driscoll Center, for her tremendous efforts and contributions to this symposium. In addition, I'd like to thank Rodney Moore of the David C. Driscoll Estate and welcome members of Dr. Driscoll's family who are joining us tonight. As I mentioned at the beginning of my remarks, this is our fourth annual John Wilmerding Symposium dedicated to exploring and expanding stories of American art. It is named for the Seraphim Professor of American Art Emeritus at Princeton University and the former curator, deputy director, trustee, and board chairman of the gallery, John Wilmerding. A grant from the Alice L. Walton Foundation makes the symposium possible. 
Thank you for joining us tonight. Now I'm honored to introduce Lonnie G. Bunch III, Secretary of the Smithsonian Institution and a National Gallery of Art trustee. I'm Lonnie Bunch. I want to thank Kaywood for inviting me to the National Gallery's John Wilmer Dink Symposium on American Art to say a few words about my friend, the gifted art historian, educator, curator, and artist, David Driscoll. When I was a young curator, Dave was a real mentor for me, encouraging and supporting my work. We forged a friendship that lasted decades. In 2018, I was invited to speak at the Center for Maine Contemporary Art, where David introduced me. I will always cherish the time we had to spend together in his beloved Maine. After all these years, he was still encouraging, supportive, and excited for the impact of the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, excited on the impact it has made. David was a consummate artist. He poured his experiences and emotions onto the canvas, offering commentary on the world around him and allowing people to see life through a different lens. His art, scholarship, and advocacy shined a needed light on the importance and impact of African-American artists, too often minimized by the Academy. The Smithsonian has benefited greatly from David's generosity. He donated his own work, as well as artwork and artifacts of other significant African-American artists, elevating their stories to a proper place of reverence. One of the most important pieces in the National Museum of African-American History and Culture is David's Behold Thy Son, a tribute to Emmett Till. Till's lynching was a catalyst for so many in the civil rights movement. David was no different. The rage he felt at the injustice of a young life cut short by racist violence inspired him to use his art, his words, to quote, stir the consciousness of a people. David's groundbreaking 1976 exhibition, Two Centuries of Black Art, was revolutionary in its own way. Its opening at the LA County Museum of Art and subsequent travel across the country calls the art world to begin to acknowledge that African-American art is fundamentally American art. That exhibition was transformative for me too, opening my eyes more fully to the history of a flourishing creativity, largely hidden until David's pioneering scholarship revealed it to the world. His legacy will live on through the University of Americans David C. Driscoll Center, helping to ensure that African-American artists are never again marginalized. David's impact resonates today more than ever. His work reminds us all to embrace the truths that art reveals about our shared humanity, irrespective of our different heritage, backgrounds, and faiths. And as, a, and as his terrible loss, is a reminder that we must continue to fight for equity throughout all aspects of American society, including in healthcare outcomes. It is my honor to know David, and although we feel a tremendous void from his absence, he has left us all with a shiny example to use our stories, our art, our voices, to fight for a more just world. What a legacy. Thank you, David, and thank you all for being here today. Thank you, Kaywin, and thank you, Lonnie. Um, also, a big thanks to everyone at the National Gallery of Art for putting together tonight's panel. 
and hosting us this evening. It's a true honor to be here tonight with this distinguished panel of artists and all of you, and most especially David's family, um, to discuss the impact and legacy of Dr. David C. Driscoll. My name is Sarah Workna. I've been co-director of Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture since 2010, which is more or less a very small short blip in the history of the relationship between Skowhegan and David, who first attended in 1953. In the subsequent 67 years, David, as David did, played every possible role in the stewardship of this school as an advisor, fundraiser, mentor, teacher, historian, and as an artist who shaped the future of this institution. I take great pride in the fact that Skohegan, which with a class of 65 participants each year, is possibly the most diverse art school in the country. And quite truthfully, that fact is directly attributable to the work that David did on behalf of the school to enable a truly plural and egalitarian educational space. He effectively expanded the pipeline of where our artists came from. He radically expanded our vision of what art making could be, what it looked like and who made it. And early on, he understood the social conditions for black artists that functioned as a barrier to places like Skowhegan and to art making more generally. Um, and he worked tirelessly to facilitate not just access, but supportive space for imagination and resonating engagement. He was a true hero to this school and the future of so many artists over many decades. So as we all know, in addition to everything else that David did, he was an extraordinary collector, both of art, but also of people. He was constantly surrounded by and engaged with other artists, family, friends, students, and uh, tonight's panel is comprised of those within this very special circle that surrounded him, representing decades of those whom David touched directly. Um, so I wanna begin by inviting everyone on our panel tonight to introduce themselves and their relationship to David, where it began, or by offering a story of his impact on their practices and trajectories as artists. Um, Crelly, if you don't mind, can we start with you? Sure, sure. Let me first say that David would have really been pleased and honored that the National Gallery and the Driscoll Center collaborated on this tribute to him. So I want to make sure everyone understands how much we appreciate that. I first met, my introduction to David Driscoll was, came through his scholarship, of course. I first met him at Lafayette College as a visiting scholar. I was teaching African American art and of course a lot of my material was based on his scholarship. That was in 2003 that I first met him. I was teaching African-American art at Lafayette College and also protest art. I invited Professor Driscoll to be one of our visiting artists inside the print studio as well. I gave him a tour of the studio and I demonstrated some of the process and showed him the work of uh, Sam Gilliam and Faith Ringo. And he was very excited by that and decided he'd like to collaborate with me. So we collaborated it began in 2003 and continued for over almost 17 years of working together. And we produced over 40 unique editions during that period. We we're working on a, uh, the, a print for the High Museum that is given to major donors of the Driscoll Prize recently when David passed unexpectedly. This collaboration that I had with David was mutually beneficial in a number of ways. Not only did they expand our art practices, but also enhanced our relationship through our experience together. I uh, 
became even closer to him as a colleague when I became the director of the Davis C. Driscoll Center in 2012. So I moved to all these relationships with him from a massive printmaker collaborating to an administrator uh, supporting the Driscoll Center and later became a close friend of his. In 2018, David and I began a series of public conversations and dialogues to share his story with a larger audience, not just his story, but our story collectively, mm. to an audience that was not so familiar with David. These were audiences of the community and not necessarily always academics. And again, we wanted to tell that story uh, as soon as we could, because we know David was, although he was keeping sketchbooks and some writings about his work, I wanted to make sure that story was shared with the rest of the world. So we began that process and that project, the Living Legacy Series was uh, sponsored by Larry and Brenda Thompson, who've been great supporters of uh, David's over many years. But I'm gonna tell you a little story about uh, uh, David to give you a sense of his uh, humanity. In 2008, David and I collaborated on a print titled Woman in Interior, which is in the permanent collection of a national gallery. We produced this edition in San Jose, Costa Rica. Now we had done a number of exhibits together internationally. We exhibited together in Mexico and Japan, but in Costa Rica, we were doing a major print of his and we had students there with us. I had a printing assistants with me and Julie McGee was also there filming it. So we did a great uh, uh, print. He considered it to be his opus print. Well, one evening uh, I got a phone call from a curator of the Presidential Palace, our collection there. And they said, we understand that David Driscoll's in the country. Now I have been coming to Costa Rica working with artists, exchanging artists for over 10 years. And no one ever called and said, it's Curly in the country. It was just David. <laughs> so that bothered me a little bit, <laughs> but I wanted to tell you that story just to demonstrate to you his sense of humanity and recognition internationally. Later that print was added to the permanent collection of the presidential's collection at the president's palace in San Jose, Costa Rica. But again, to demonstrate that his humanity extended far beyond his immediate family and friends, that the world embraced David and they embraced him with such regard because of his sense of humanity and his embracing of diverse cultures around the world. So that's my first encounter with uh, David Driscoll. The maestro, we call him, I call him super duper maestro. This is a uh, title he got when we did an exhibition in Mexico City. And every now and then I would introduce him that way. And he was always pleased to hear me address him as a super duper maestro. <laughs> I'm gonna come back to you and ask more specifics about the process sure. of making friends with him. But I wanna um, move to, to Jefferson and, and start with, with your, rec your favorite recollection of David or meeting David. Wow, this is a hard one because there were so many, but I, I think that, um... I think what I loved about Dr. Driscoll is that he allowed you to um, forget all the great things he's done so that he could be closer to you, you know? When I first met Dr. Driscoll, I was a student at the University of Maryland. I was studying theater and I wasn't sure exactly um, what I was gonna do, but Dr. Driscoll's like, you know, you're, you're an artist. And, and, I, and I remember him saying that and, and actually 
I didn't have an idea of like all of his accomplishments. I mean, this is one of the teaching points that I use now when I when I work with students is let them know that like it, you know, before the internet, you know, we had to open a book to be able to find out who our professors are or were. And and I think it was it was a little while after I graduated that I I began to understand his his uh, his not only his humanistic um, greatness but also his scholarship. And so I came back from Seattle and I, I immediately reached out to Dr. Driscoll and, and I, he invited me to his house. And that's something that was so special. I'd been in maybe two homes of my professors and all of undergraduate, but his was, you know, spectacular. I mean, it was the home that you want to be in. I mean, it's just, it always smells like wonderful food. There's incredible art on the, the wall. I mean, there's, there's, there's warmth and courtesy. So, I mean, for him to invite me into his home was, was pretty spectacular, and I, I remember that. Um, but I said to Dr. Driscoll, I said, Dr. Driscoll, if, if there's anything that I can do for you, you know, if, if there's any task that, that you need done around the house or, you know, anything that I can do to, you know, to, to, to be closer, um, let me know. And, and he, he said, you know, I, I have some tasks outside of my garden. And... Uh, and I think that's where we begin. And I think this is an, when I when I think back to it, it's just it's so much more sentimental than I can convey over a Zoom that that you know he placed me in his garden, and 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 from that garden I, I saw some of the greatest artists, some who are on this panel, walk into his home, and and I began to understand what it would take to be a working artist, not to be the superstar artist that crashes and burn at, at, at 27, but the artist that's able to maintain. A career well until uh, you know his eighty, his eighties, darn near ninety. So I mean, I feel like um, one of the special things about Dr. Driscoll is he he allowed people in. I mean, and it's, it wasn't just me; it was, it was people on the bus uh, that that would just casually speak to him. So I think it's that openness that I feel um, that I probably remember most, and the idea that you know not all master artists are are master mentors. I mean, I think it's really important to acknowledge that not everybody can be a great artist and be generous. And he displayed that, modeled that, and it's, I think about it every day. It's very moving. I always think about David as <clears throat> he had kind of no divisions as part of that openness. If he was artist, mentor, like the fact that you were gardening at his house is always seems perfectly fitting as a way of teaching in a funny way, you know, like there wasn't any separation between any of the work that he did in his life, which was part of his remarkable humanity and <laughs> generosity. Um, Keith, you were friends with Dr. Driscoll for, for many years. Maybe you can tell us a little about your, your time with him. Yeah, I met him when I was a baby in the cradle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, met, I met David in 1966. I lived in Chicago at that time, and I traveled to Washington to Howard University for a meeting with Dr. Uh, Porter, who was chairman, Dr. James Porter, who was chairman of the Department of Art at, at Howard, and David was on the faculty. David was, I think, an associate professor then. And Dr. Um, Porter introduced me to David and to Lois Jones, and we all had a good conversation. Wow. And David and I went off and we chatted about, just spontaneously about the art world which wasn't really there for African-American people. But we had a good conversation about its absence. And I went back to Chicago 
And six months later, he wrote me a letter saying he had taken the position of department chair at Fisk University and asked if I had joined him. He said, um, um, Aaron Douglas had just retired. So I went to Fisk in 67 for a year and it was a great year. And um, we did lots of wonderful things following David's vision as teacher, as curator. One of the interesting David revitalized the art department at Fisk. He renovated uh, what was Van Vechten um, um, Hall, Van Vechten Gallery, actually, which was included a collection of art of 101 pieces of art given by Georgia O'Keeffe to Fisk University after the death of her husband, Alfred Stiglitz, given the name of, um, of Carvin Vechten, who was a, um, a photographer. And they'd spent a lot of time at Fisk, um, along with Zora Neale Hurston, and Langs and Hughes, but the, 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 the collection really laid dormant for quite a while. And David really renovated it, it included works by Picasso, Cezanne, Toulouse Lautrec, Renoir, um, Arthur Dove, um, Marzen Hartley, and, um, and uh, um, George O'Keefe herself. And David really used that collection to bring people from all over the South to Nashville, to Fisk. And at that time, Nashville was a very segregated city. And Fisk was in a very segregated part of the city. White people didn't really go to Fisk. They had secretaries who didn't let their families know that they were Fisk because they were white. So to bring a whole audience of white people from Georgia, from Alabama, and across Tennessee to Fisk University was a great accomplishment. And he then Forward relation, forward relationship with with newspapers, got a lot of press. Made collect, uh, relationship with um, Vanderbilt University, with Peabody College, with um, all of the major players in Nashville, and so people came to Fisk. In addition to which, he then created a gallery, an art gallery, and he brought in art from New York. He made relationships with um, the Harmon Foundation with Mary um, Beattie Brady, who was then still the, the, the director of the Harlem Foundation in New York, the Harmon Foundation. And he brought, so the Harmon Foundation, if, as you may know, had sponsored many Africans to go to Europe and, and, and they'd created exhibitions and made catalogs. And David liked that idea of catalogs because there was no African-American art history in those days. I graduated from the Art Institute of Chicago in 1965 and I had never heard of Romeo Bearden. I'd only heard of Jacob Lawrence because I read about him in a magazine. So we didn't know anyone. And David set about trying to correct that. And his first mission was to, was to catalog people. So he brought a lot of those uh, catalogs from the Harmon Foundation, including um, works by um, Charles Seabree, um, Archibald Martley, William H. Johnson. First time I'd ever heard of William H. Johnson was when he brought a collection of art, which he borrowed, which is now, I think, in the, the, the uh, National Museum of American Art or the American Smithsonian American Museum of Art. And so he used that in large part to begin to expand what African-American art was about. And he did something else too. He encouraged people. I went with him to places like College Art Association of America, which is one of the water holes, which is where we began to meet one another. And so in addition to which he taught a lot and we had good faculty, you know, um, Earl Hooks was there. Um, Martin Parrier taught there. Um, several other people um, taught there. Um, he did he introduced filmmaking 
Carlton Moss came from LA once in a while to, to, um, to do that. He introduced photography. Um, let's see, Johnny Sinstack came from um, Chicago to teach photography. But I left Fisk after a year, went back to, to Chicago and began to teach at the University of Illinois. I mean, David and I kept in contact all the time. He would visit me in Chicago and I returned to Nashville to visit him. I was there with him with Jacob Lawrence, with the Jacob Lawrence show. That he had the Toussaint Louverture series, which he had borrowed with the help of George O'Keefe. And then they loaned that exhibition to me. I took it to Chicago in 71. So I had close connection with David for all those years. And then he went to, he left Nashville, West Tennessee, and went to um, University of Maryland in 1977, I believe. And um, he was there. And then he, he called me and the provost. And they encouraged me to come. I went to the University of Maryland to join David in 79. We taught there for together for 13 years. We showed together, we exhibited across the country. We wrote catalogs and books together and we explored ideas about art and mostly his vision and um, which expanded mine. And later on, you know, he was department chair when I went there. Later on, I was department chair. Sometime along the line, I became dean of the university, the, the, the college as well. But I moved to um, San Francisco um, to be, be dean of San Francisco Art Institute. And David came there all the time I was in, in California. David visited me many times and I would visit him. So we had a long, lifelong collaboration on many things. And we traveled across the country exhibitions. We traveled um, as um, consultants for different agencies. We gave lectures in various places. Um, we considered each other the brother that the other didn't have. I was a younger unruly brother um, and he tolerated my unruliness, which David always did with everyone. He was such a generous person. So that really, you know, in as a summary, is my, um, my, my knowledge and my work with David. I think David, uh... I think David really supported unruliness. I, that's, I always feel like that was true with, with me. And I think, you know, despite being a very classic Southern gentleman, I think he was obviously unruly himself. Um, and so it's a real, it's an honor to hear all of those stories. He spoke so fondly of all of those, those institutions and those times. Um, I wanna move to, to Carrie Mae Weems to offer us some of her reflections. Well, you know, in a way, it's sort of unfair. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I only mean, you know, I, I'm a few, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit behind. I'm, I'm, I'm not, David was not my, quote, friend, right? I interviewed him. I knew him. I respected him immensely. And the thing that sort of amazed me about David was that David knew something about me. And even when I was a young artist, um, struggling and trying, uh, he extended his hand to me. That, uh, and, and that I was, I was stunned by the fact that he knew me at all. Um, what I remember about him, the last time I saw David, um, was at uh, the Park Avenue Armory. Uh, it was, uh, Theastra Gates was putting on a project uh, uh, around uh, the Black Artist Retreat. And David was there. And David, the thing that impressed me about David was that David was everywhere. He was everywhere, he was always looking, he was always thinking, 
He was with he was with the young and the old and those in between. That he was this deeply curious man, deeply concerned not only about what was going on with African American artistic practice, but with art in general. What's happening in the field? What does it mean? And what do I need to pay attention to? And so he so so he had this incredible gift of being just about everywhere. And you know, he was a, a giant, but like all ordinary men, he he fell because that's what we do. We live and we die. He was humble, he was a teacher, a writer, a curator, a collector, a husband, a father, a son, an uncle, a brother, gifted and humble, who extended his hand to me even when he didn't really know my name, but he knew that I was trying to be an artist. And he was everywhere, always watching, always paying attention to what was going on in the field, he was bold, he was steadfast, he was quiet, he was a maker of things, a tremendous poet, an enormous intellect, crafting and creating institutions, exhibitions, great parties, and he was unafraid. And he was passionate and he was determined and he was gracious and he was articulate, he was whole and he was forceful, he was profound and he was funny, he was bold and he was shy. And uh, that he reached out to me at a time when I was young and trying to figure my way, um, I'll always remember. And that he offered me the Driscoll Prize, which was the greatest shock of my life, uh, is really near and dear to my heart. But what he's done, I think, as a, as a, as a, as a man, what he did as a man, what he did as a black man, what he did with such clarity and conviction is, um, is pretty um, extraordinary and exceptional in every way. Thank you for that very much. Um, Frank, as, as another longtime friend of, of David's and collaborator and engager, maybe you can offer us some, uh, some stories about your relationship and my uh my history with david is almost uh, an accident you know i was uh coming from chicago going to a all-white school in tennessee 25 miles from nashville on a track scholarship so I, I wasn't even in the arts i was like in the track scholarship so i had a cousin that was enrolled at fisk a young lady that was a painter and she was enrolled in David's class. So she, she told me to come to day, come come and join her in the class one day. So I said, okay, you know, I'll come see you, you know, I'll come see you. I come, went to the class. And I had two other friends that were at Fisk at the time, uh, Bobby Sinstag and John Simmons, who were photographers. And I was trying to take pictures at the time, but nothing on the order of art. But when I got into David's class, uh, in uh, African-American art history, a subject I didn't even know existed. I didn't, I knew about maybe uh, Romare Beard and I, I heard of him through my mother, but nobody else. I didn't even know we had people that painted. So the thing about David is that when you get close to him, he's so endearing and he's 
infuses you with such a, a sense of optimism and and pride that you're like uh, it's like a moth to a flame, you know. <laughs> you, I found myself going to his class every week and auditing, you know, just like he uh, did when he went to the first time he went to Howard. He audited classes. He wasn't even a student, but about three weeks pass and every now and then David would look over and see me and give me a look like, man, what are you doing here? You know, but he never said anything to me and I, <laughs> I loved him for that. So um, as a, I was only there for a semester and he infused such a sense of pride in me about the culture that I wanted to be a, an artist. So I gave up track and started taking pictures as, as, as an artist. and. Subsequently, we've done many projects together. And I mean, I got a lot of stuff. I'm working on a book right now on him as a sharecropper. It's called uh, The Education of a Sharecropper. So later on, if there are questions about it, I can answer. I think a through line through many of these conversations is I, David. David's kind of love for for young people i think or his excitement around people that were trying uh, carrie may said this earlier before we were on the panel about david loved anybody who was trying and that certainly seems true with his, his career as a teacher but just with people around him all the time you know like if he saw that you were doing something it didn't matter what form it was or what kind of art you were making he was there for it it was a real pleasure to watch him at skohegan every year meeting with the the young artists that were here, you know, he knew he wanted to hear what they were doing. He wanted to know what they were up to. It's exciting. It was a, it's a real, <clears throat> you don't often have teachers or people that you meet that are that interested in, in, in who you are and what you're bringing to the world, but he was always there for it. Well, I was 18 years old and I think he liked the fact that I was auditing his class and I wasn't even enrolled at Fisk. I was yeah. enrolled in Middleton C State University, all white school. Yeah, so, like rule breakers, or you liked rule breakers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, when I'd come over and uh, find out all of this uh, blackness, you know, it was like, oh my God, <laughs> this, this exists? <laughs> this is in the world? We actually have a culture? Wow. I mean, it was mind blowing, mind altering, mind opening. And all that warmth. He was so warm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. He was just completely open. He was so open, and 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 always this twinkle. Yeah, this twinkle in his eye. He was so youthful. His spirit was so uh, enveloping. It was the thing that I loved about him. I mean, you know, he was eighty-six years old, right? But you know, but he was moving around like a thirty-six-year-old. He was just everywhere. You know, smiling also, and warm also, and also he said, in the most extraordinary way. Also, he said when he retired, he, he worked more when he was retired than he did when he was uh, teaching at Maryland. Hi, hi everyone. Um, my name is Lyle Ashton Harris and it's an honor to be here. Um, it's really warming and healing to be um, an honor to be here to celebrate you know, Uncle David. David and here um, I was talking about the past, but he's very much present, you know, with us today, um, spirit. And um, it's also good to hear about um, in preparing, you know, preparing for this. Uh, um, it's good to hear about that his accepting because 
um, you know, David, you know, was always accepting of me. You know, when I was a young Turk, young queen, whatever you want to call it, you know, that there was an openness, you know, that I saw in him, you know, and um, doing a certain type of work as a, you know, as a young guy, as a young man, that might have been difficult. With David, I always got openness and acceptance. You know, there was, and I have this photograph that I took of him and Rodney, you know, and to this day, I can't, it was all, it's in my Whitney, the Whitney show. I'm still trying to find out what is the location. I'm trying to rack my brain. I know it's not the Sir Missy McCollum. I know it's not the Whitney, but the fact that how photography is in, in the act of memorialization and whether that was taken in the nineties or a photograph of the two of them, um, David and Rodney, you know, 20 years later in Maine, when I went to visit, speaks to the idea of, let's say, of uh, the passage of time, but how we, how we recognize um, and how we honor those that we love. Um, um, although I met David in the 90s, it was a, a point returning from living in, Tanzan living in Ghana, where I was teaching for seven years for NYU, that I was, um, I was um, as Carrie said, I too was, had the honor of being the 10th annual recipient of the Driscoll Prize. And you know, although I had received many awards, there was something about that particular award that meant that I was accepted as part of the pantheon of black culture, if that makes any sense. I mean, the fact that that meant something even more than, I mean, the Guggenheim was good, but there was something about being in that trajectory of blackness, of a wider culture, for me, which is, it epitomizes David's acceptance, you know, um, and that openness. So I wanna also talk about the fact that we are in the process of memorialization, also grieving, one, one which is lost, but how do we recognize the fact the very life of him is with all of us today? And I wanna just talk about that, you know, I mean, to not only to be received the Driscoll Prize, but to be welcomed in his home and to go there and spend time with he and on, you know, Thelma, you know, and to just to see the act of grace and kindness. I mean, you can't buy that. The type of grace and anointing that David had and Uncle David had and the grace that he and Thelma exuded and the transmission from David to Rodney. I mean, that's something, there was a, a quietness, um, a, a, a regality of something which is, for me, is moving. And through that, um, I was able to capture or be a witness to that, the joy and the light that was David. So I just wanted to say that, um, I'm honored to be here. I'm so humbled by hearing these narratives. You know, as Keith said, just as Frank said, just thinking about and, and carry our legacies and the fact that he not only was a steward, a custodian, but created culture. I mean, it's quite remarkable, you know. Um, and in addition to that, but is that inner, that inner hum, hum, humility, humanity, but also grace um, is something that, that, that stays with me. It, it's that grace, that openness, that expansiveness which is for me um, everlasting. So it's an honor to be here. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Lyle. I think it's really, you know, I think younger generations of artists probably can't conceive of, of the kind of massive effort that David had to make to carve this space and how important, and like abstractly we can understand it, but maybe we don't necessarily kind of understand what it was like when it didn't exist at all. And so hearing stories, 
is really it's really important to me and 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 those that are going to watch it'll be really important to be reminded that this is this is a single individual that created that pipeline there's one man, there's one man. yeah, yeah. Um, mary lovelace o'neill would you Queen of Queens. Yeah, um, I um, with these guys who are uh, scholars and and talkers, it's hard for me to um, get in and say what I have to say. I I I, I speak of him uh, essentially as uh, my teacher and mentor. Um, and something happens here that happened uh, when my own father passed and we went to various tributes and, and stuff. And even before he retired, we got to, and I got to hear things about him that I, I had no idea of. I mean, I, people who uh, loved him and I thought, hmm. That's my daddy, you know. It, I and I feel that way about all all of you that that you had a life with him. And I'm going like, well, I didn't know about that, and I didn't know this because I I thought that he, he he's that kind of person who makes you feel you're you're the only friend he has, you know. And so you you assume a kind of um, you know, you you take him over as as your own, and and your selfishness prevails. Like this, this is my person. You know, I, you know, you were just foreigners, and we felt that way. I continued after he went um, down to Fisk, and those young people or his students, and we would re, uh, interact with them on uh, for various reasons. And I always thought, well, these people don't really know Mr. Driscoll. Who are they? But he had that kind of openness that all of you have spoken about that made each person special. I wrote a few things, just kind of bullet points. And um, as uh, should we have time, I can, can try to expand on some of these things. But I just wanted to... Um, I say that Mr. Driscoll, like my father, let me be as crazy as I needed to be. He taught me at some point that it was time to research myself. He taught me to fight for what I believed, even if it was wrong. I could always change my mind. He taught me that it was just fine to live in contradiction. He always answered our my calls, even the three o'clock ones. Yes, a bit tight perhaps, but anxious to share my with him my epiphany, like it couldn't wait until a decent hour. Crying, telling him a boyfriend or a husband had moved on. Already a professor asking him to make a special purple. He encouraged our work, my work in the in, in the movement, in, in the student movement. And there are things that have been brought back to me as I listened to you guys. I, I came, it was because of him that I actually got to Skowhegan because Miss Jones 
didn't want me to go because she said I would start a ruckus up there and my hair was natural and my trench coat was dirty and sold my sneakers. And Mr. Driscoll fought and fought and fought and I received that that scholarship in 1963. And I, I, I make note that he was there in 53 and I arrived 10 years later, which is I don't know. I always think things like that are magical. Mm. While I was at Skowhegan that year, I, uh, he invited me to come down to his house and uh, Devereen and Daphne were there and I cooked for them and they didn't appreciate it because the chicken was half cooked and they loved telling that story and embarrassing me. And then uh, <clears throat> Mr. Driscoll and Thelma came to Chile and stayed with me and my husband, Toro. And he took over our friends in a way you cannot imagine, from fishermen to judges and doctors and other artists and critics and so on. At any rate, he had been invited, of course, along with us to uh, a friend's house uh, in Valparaiso. And they live high, high, high up in the mountains, but their apartment was sort of a wraparound and they could see the the port, they could, you know, they 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 could see the mountains, they could, you know, just see everything. And that New Year's was the only time he was in that home. But you could you in the the kitchen, you could see it was sort of you could see all of what was around. Uh, and that night, everyone was uh, drunk except Mr. Driscoll and surprisingly me. But he drove all the way back to our home without having even to ask directions. So I say that to say that he, when he got back to the States, sent a thank you note to the people we had spent that uh, New Year's Eve with. And by memory, he had captured that whole panorama. And this was not something that could have been connected by various pictures that he had taken of a space. He had done this by memory. It was the most amazing thing. I think, you know, uh, others of you know of, of that ability. I didn't know it until then. I am simply saying that I, I am so happy to be here with all of you to learn many things. And that was one of them. Uh, let's see, what else? I um, I, I don't want to, uh, to take you know, too much time so that we don't have a lot of time for question and answers, but I want to say something in case I don't get a chance to say it. And I wrote this out uh, and I, I called, um, and ask if I could be last so that I could say what I have to say. And so for fear of being kicked off the can, uh, uh, of the panel, I asked to be able to, to say this. Uh, and it is, I beg that the vaccine Donald Trump has said he is providing, especially for students at black colleges and universities be rejected. His gift to our colleges and universities could quite easily kill off 
a whole new gener generation of scholars, philosophers, doctors, architects, lawyers, artists, the, the whole, all of us, all of these young people and their teachers. He has again posed the question, what do we have to lose? And as we have said, quite simply our lives. We have already lost our, our friend and mentor, a great artist, scholar, and many thousands of others because of Trump's folly, folly, his ignorance and depravity. We're not lab rats. So please, please remember Tuskegee. That's, uh, oh, one other thing I'd like to say about him and, and how he introduced us to other artists. And I think because of my introduction to Klein uh, and, and many others of that ill Pollock and so on, but he brought in these books and someone was talking about building these catalogs so that we as young black artists would know where to go to learn about each other. But uh, I, I, he, he brought this big book in with these paintings of Klein, and I said, you know, Mr. Driscoll, what, you know, what is going on here? What is happening with this guy? He said to me, "Why don't you try to figure it out? Why don't you make some paintings like that and see what happens?" Well, I never caught up necessarily with what Klein was doing, but it taught me something about exploration trying to figure out what that person is about, but also using those same skills to, to understand my own work, my own, my own whatever it is I am. Okay, I'm done. Thank you, Mary. I mean, I think, you know, taking that moment to, to talk about the vaccine and COVID's effect on Black communities in particular is really important and also follows to, to David's example about bringing to the front the things that we need to talk about as a community so that our erasure doesn't, isn't perpetuated, isn't continued. And I know David didn't really, he didn't ever talk about his work as being like an act of service, but certainly I think about what I've been enabled to do in my job and even the position that I have, which then enables artists that come after me through Skowhegan, you know, his legacy in that respect is very strong and it's radical. And, and so I wanna just open it up to the group and particularly those of you who have known him, who knew him for, for so many decades to just ask about kind of how his sense of purpose changed over time or grew over time. And for those of you who knew him kind of in the shorter term, how that has kind of informed your own practices as artists and as all as teachers really um, as well. Well, I could say, should I go or should I wait for somebody else? To, you know, I, I, I should have mentioned earlier, he not only, when, when David was at Fisk, he not only imported exhibitions like from the Harmon Foundation, but most, more, even more importantly, he created his own. Mm -hmm. he, he made exhibitions with catalogs of people like Richard Hunt, Ralph Arnold, um, um, Sam Middleton. 
and a number of artists and he wrote catalogs and from them so he he, he put them on the map and he, he documented the work before anyone else did but one of the interesting things about david we're talking about his is is his persona as an african-american scholar an artist and thinker but david was much, was also much wider when i went to um to Washington in to, 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 to Maryland in 1979. It was just after the Iranian Revolution. And the US was the students in campus, whatever, had this tension with Iranian students. And David, we had maybe two Iranian students or so in the art department of maybe a couple hundred students, I can't remember. But David pioneered along with other faculty members of color across campus, other African-American faculty members an agenda to help the Iranian students. And we got together and we met about it. And somebody said, well, you know, do they like us? And David's point is, it's not about whether they like us or not, we hope they do, but it's about our own humanity. We are people who had suffered. We are people who understand, we, we understand what it's like to be persecuted. And here, and we're in a position to help some other people and we should offer that. And we did that. We we, um, we we talked to the students. Some people offered them places to live, different advice, whatever. And some of those people have been in in contact with David and with us for um, for a long time after that. And one another thing that David did was he he at Maryland is he wanted to expand the curriculum to include art and ideas in Asia. And he brought in. He, he encouraged a number of Chinese students and Chinese American community to send students to the University of Maryland. And the information, and he and I worked together on that, was his lead I followed. And it even got as far as to Texas. People are in Chinese in Texas heard that at the University of Maryland that was being encouraged. And the Chinese government, in fact, extended an invitation for us to attend, to, to visit China. We weren't able to do it for reasons I can't remember. But it's just to give you an idea of David's wider humanity. David was very receptive and very supportive of artists of all kinds. And his idea, which came perhaps, it cemented from his, 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 his studies at Howard University and James Porter, because they had that vision as well. They had a vision of having a global art. They were having exhibitions of people like, um, of Paul Clay and Matisse, south of New York before anyone else in the United States. They brought Wifredo Lam, Cuba here, they traveled worldwide. They brought the first exhibition, the first exhibition of, of, of contemporary African artists brought here by the Harmon Foundation, and they couldn't get up in New York to show it. And Howard showed that exhibition. And I know it influenced David a lot, people like um, Ibrahim El Salahi and, um, and Ben Nwanwu and um, Skanda Bagoshin, who later taught there, are all people who, who expanded David's vision as he connected with them. So David's vision was really very, very global. He saw African American art as being part of a wider art. Yes. I, I that's, yeah, I think that that's, you know, I, I was thinking about that, you know, this idea that, you know, it, it would have been really great actually to have, you know, in some ways it could be a smaller panel, in some ways it could be the larger panel, you know, that sort of represents, you know, a sort of more diverse group of people that David actually really impacted. But the thing that I really want to say that, you know, Keith, that you're really underscoring that I think is so, important and I'm not really sure to what extent the audience um, uh, knows this because I can't see the audience. I don't know where we are. I don't know who's looking. But the Driscoll Center, the Driscoll Center as an entity was an extraordinary 
accomplishment. And there are only a very few such institutions like that, right? That, that collected in this particular way in the United States. And that yeah. David managed to pull this off at the University of Maryland, right? And to secure a, an institution, a research institution that is a collecting institution is absolutely important. It's not a museum in the traditional sense, right? But it is an institute at a university, and it's very rare. And um, you know, and you must have been working, Keith, with David during this entire time, really working towards this idea that they would actually construct an institution in his name and in his honor, using his name really to further the cause, because he was really not interested in his name only. He was only interested in his name to the extent that he could use it as a platform for furthering a deeper cause. Yeah, we had discussions about this for a long, long time, well before the uh, the institute was, um, before the, the center was founded. Yeah, you know. I remember speaking with him about that too, Keith and, and uh, Carrie, all those many, many years ago. And to see it uh, become a major institution, you know, a major arm um, is, is is just a you know, it, it witnesses the kind of vision that he had, and and many, many institutions were vying for that. Um, I was San Francisco um, really wanted it out there, and in fact, the San Francisco Museum of Art is, was largely created not as a, as a result of the impetus to bring the Driscoll collection to San Francisco. Um, the the Young Museum wanted that collection very much, and David did not really oh that's interesting love the, love the young but he really didn't want it because they didn't they, they weren't gonna put this the, keep the art up they're gonna put it in the basement and bring one or two out occasionally and uh, he wasn't he wasn't for that at all mm -hmm. that, um, i'll say another thing that he along with schnell uh at tugaloo pulled uh together a collection that was enviable because he along with Seltz, went to all of those big New York artists, uh, like um, Pollock. Tougaloo had two or three incredible Pollocks. And almost any, uh, and certainly Jake and Romare and, and those guys, but I mean, major, major figures, de Kooning and, um, I, you know, all of those, all of those fellas. And it was, you know, because Mr. Driscoll linked people, he put people together um, so that they could do things bigger than they could do alone. And, it, you know, which is, I mean, that, that Driscoll Center is a perfect example of that. We have his papers, his, his research, his original drawings for the two centuries of African-American art or black art. So we have yeah. that material that he could have sold. Institutions want to buy that material from him. Yeah. And I used to ask him, you know, first of all, where did he learn this lesson about keeping everything? Because David mm -hmm. kept everything. And he told him that uh, Dr. Uh, Porter taught him that. that exactly. yeah. keep this material, yeah. keep this material, keep this history. But it was also important that uh, you understand that the David Driscoll Center is one of the if not the only institution in the country named after an African-American artist, 
The Driscoll Prize is the only prize given out each year in the name of an African-American artist. So the institution is really a symbol of David. But I want to touch on something that uh, Keith mentioned, this idea of his students. In 2013, Dorit and myself were doing a presentation at the International Conference of Art and Humanities in Athens, Greece. And David mentioned to us, he was in Spinocchio, Italy, and he mentioned to us that he had had two students from Greece while he was at Howard University. I was intrigued by that. So what are we doing with two Greek women at Howard University? So uh, he arranged to come over to Athens to witness the presentation, and we were able to find these two students. And they came into the hotel to meet David, and they just hugged him and weeped. And I was still, how do these two women from Greek get, Greece get to uh, Howard? One said she came because she understood that they taught Greek at Howard University <laughs> and they had the Greek colors of the flag. She was mistaken. They had Greek fraternity. The other one was there because her father had passed and her uncle lived. Was she said, if you work for me, I'll send you to this great school called Howard University. <laughs> and and uh, one of them said when she came to campus, all the sisters were running around because they had to find other Greek students to introduce them to each other. It was really hilarious. Now we were having this conversation on David's birthday. They had arranged for a birthday party for David on a penthouse suite overlooking the Acropolis and we're having Greek lamb. So David was in his moment. And one of the stu uh, former students is an illustrator. She brought out a journal and in that journal was a drawing from 1963 on the March on Washington and David had taken his students to that march. Hmm. And she had a sketch of that and still had it. Fiscal Center is also committed not to his only his scholarship, mm -hmm. but also his principles, his humanity. And keep in mind, David was a son of a preacher. And for many, and I think of David as being his own minister and his ministry is this culture, is this art. And we are his flock. We were his flock. And that's what I think David was doing. Yeah. I, I, I think, you know, you know, not unlike James Bolin, you know, he had just this sort of profound, you know, within the visual arts, you know, he had a profound sense of the moral responsibility of art and artists, you sure. know, speak, you know, to the moment of their time. I represent it in this possible way. Carrie, to introduce well, what the like Carl, David right? has the Martin Luther King of African-American art. And I've thought yeah, of it that Definitely, way. definitely. So Carly, could you talk about what the vision is, let's say for the archives in terms of publications? I mean, what, what, what do you see as a vision? Of well, right now, we have this great uh, exhibition up now from our archive, taken from the archive. But what's so wonderful about this collection is that we would do an exhibition. For example, we did an exhibition of Charles White and we brought out the letters, the correspondence between David and Charles White. And you know, David would write in beautiful cursive if any of you have ever gotten his letters. Yes. It's amazing. So we would have exhibitions and discover that David had relationships with these artists. I would read letters from Elizabeth Catlett asking David to pursue a collector to get her last $250. And she'd have doodles around the edges of the letter. It's, it's amazing. 
Yeah. So what we're doing is, and, and, and Carrie alluded to this, we have a fund provided by some of our patrons to actually acquire works as well. So we're building in that, on that uh, collection. One thing that was, uh, I wanted to try to change when I got to the Driscoll Center and have been able to with Dorit's, uh, my colleague, <laughs> is that a lot of that material was locked into the 1950s to 70s because of his scholarship. And that scholarship shifted because for, for a long time, David was the only African-American scholar with some national uh, profile. And keep in mind, he was considered and introduced during this program by the director of the National Gallery as the foremost authority of African-American art. David was an authority, period. And you think about this for a moment. How many men of color or women of color have you met that are considered to be an authority? And David was an authority that made it possible for generations of African-Americans to enter into the art world, like we've talked about our, our relationship, but think about the general public that was now invited into a museum that had never been invited into a museum before. David was the bridge for that. I do think it's important while we honor David, Uncle David, that we also situate him in an historical global context because exactly. he's the first, but also there's Franz Fanon, there's Du Bois, um, there's Alan Locke. I think it's important exactly. that we don't isolate, but to talk about that he comes from a legacy of exactly. great men and women. And I think it's important to talk about the specificity of his legacy, but also to historicize it. And I think that is gonna be important as opposed to just saying, because he is within a legacy. And I yeah, think- question about you, The Driscoll Center is preparing an exhibition next year on uh, landscapes painting. And we want mm. to we pre present African-American artists who are doing landscape, but it's not just African-American artists. Wolf Kahn and a whole range of artists are involved there. George Ennis, we have his work in, we're trying to show the context between someone like Richard Mayhew and George Ennis. So mm -hmm. we are trying to remove the barriers that mm -hmm. had existed. And it's mm -hmm. interesting, David has specialized in these African-American shows. We were at uh, an exhibition we had traveled of, uh, since the 1950s, uh, we had put together at Driscoll Center. And during a talk, and these shows were, were rented by these institutions from us because they had no curators for this material. And during his talk, David said, well, you know, we need to bring these shows to an end. Now I understand that, but you know, they had paid us to have the show. And I said, you can't say this in front of everyone, David. You're addressing a problem. Don't, he, I, he really upset me. No, don't say it now. But he was, as well as he was advancing this, this argument and recognition and value of African-American art, he was always talking about it as an American art form and wanted to leave that demarcation and become broader than that, as Lau had pointed out. No question about it. Well, something you just said about putting it in a historic context, you mentioned Du Bois and, and um, Alain Locke and people like that, and they're all part of David's tradition, part of Howard and, and the, the Harlem Renaissance. And people yes. often think about the Africanness of that aesthetic and yes. they think about its relationship to Africa and paintings by Aaron Douglas. And they think about it in relationship all the way across Africa into Egypt. And the, the traditional notion is that, of course, you're thinking of Egypt, you're thinking of pyramids, and you're thinking of, of Egyptian paintings and of pharaohs. But 
there's another part of that as I look at David, just simply using a critical eye. I've never really discussed this, David, but looking at his art, David is, a, as we know, is a Christian person. Yeah. And, but 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 African American Christianity, black the black church, is about Christianity. It's about community. It's about organization. It's about education. It's about all Revolution. of those things from slavery until now. Sure. And part of part of if you look at David's art, as I look at it. Personally, a part of it relates to a different, the abstraction of it goes back to Africa in a different way, not only to the West African masks that we know mm -hmm. about, but you know, Christianity has been in Africa since the first century. You mm -hmm. probably, probably know that, you know, the Coptic art, the, the Copts, Coptic uh, uh, um, uh, culture in, in the Sudan, um, where presumably St. Mark was born and, and died, brought the Coptic church which is split from uh, the, the, the Roman church in Constantinople to, to, to Sudan, down through Egypt, through the uh, Blue Nile into, into, into um, Ethiopia, the White Nile through um, the Sudan, and uh, I'm sorry, he was born in Libya, through Sudan and all the way to Uganda. So that's from the first century. So slaves who came here, in all likelihood, brought a lot of Christianity with them. And if you look at David's art, a lot of that reminds me in many ways of the stylization of some of the imagery of Coptic art, much, much more so perhaps than of European abstraction. And I don't know that we've explored that aspect of David's art nearly as much. You know, we also, we also tend not to think about him as a painter. And what is interesting for me is that that, that is essentially the way I've always thought of him, you know, and I knew about his scholarship and, and all of that, but it was essentially around work, you know, um, you know, I, we, uh, I, I worked at his home and, uh, you know, did some drawings and so on, but what, whatever it was about, he did things in my home. He did pictures of Tilly, if you remember, and and all, always he always left the things. But we we I think his his own work is um, much more a mystery than his scholarship. And I'm hoping that there will be shows that uh, open up his his work you know, that can travel and so that people can see that side of him, that making yeah, side of him. Mary has a retrospective that is opening in, uh, in February at the High Museum that will be traveling throughout the country. It is a, it was arranged for his 90th birthday, but it will start in February. And Julie McGee is, is a curator of that exhibition. And who's writing, who's writing the, I think Julie is the primary uh, curator and, and writer for it, but it's going to be a phenomenal show. Yeah, I have an essay in it as well. So he he knew about it, Curly, before he passed. Yeah, we were. He was involved with it. Are uh, there events that were being tied around this? We were doing a big 90th birthday party at the Driscoll Center for him, mm -hmm. and uh, on the occasion of this major retrospective that is, mm -hmm. is going to be traveling. He came to my show in New York. Um, um, yeah. Carrie and I were speaking about that. And I I feel like if I had known 
what would happen some few days after that that opening. I just wouldn't have let go of him. And my husband said to me, because he gets all you know spiritual and so on, said that maybe he came to tell you goodbye. And I I I look at you know that as being such a that I I got at least to see him uh, one last time. I think following up on Mary's point, I think it'd be good for all of us to talk about, you know, the lithograph of he and um, Thelma from, on Thelma from um, 1952. Um, I think it'd be great because I think we don't talk about the role of on Thelma in relationship in terms of and we really need to allow. Let's say, I'm sorry. I have, I, well, I've heard from the girls that um, since his passing, she has just gone straight into overdrive, handling everything up front that he had handled anyway. You know, that she, she's just like, you know, she is left, he left her in a position to do what needs to be done. And, and she's about it. She told me a very funny story about um, Mr. Driscoll being basically a pack rat, and and I I I am certainly that. And I I think, you know, well maybe collectors are that's but but there's an excuse. But I really want to thank Thelma, even though I can't see her, and I don't know if she's there in in that audience because she tolerated all of those calls at three o'clock in the morning, not just from me, but from Starmanda and Sylvia and Lloyd and you know all of these people who, who just felt they could call on him at any time of day and night. And she never did not give the phone to him, if you know what I mean. She knew that we were important to him and that he was his his judgment was important for us and it I I anyway. I think that speaks to that speaks to the power and the mystery of the relationship, to the individuality of coexisting, of having an interior life. I mean, when I was visiting them and cooking greens for them in Maine, it just is to be in that the bosom, that quietness and people having the two of them coexisting and having their own space. It brought back the power of being with my grandparents, you know what I'm saying? Just seeing that 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 love. I mean, um, Keith spoke about the black church, the AME, that deep, rich culture, you know. Fortunately, we knew this was gonna go fast, and I feel like we're breaking into new areas of scholarship to to talk about with David. Um, about David, but uh, Julie and Valerie and Alvia are here to join us and we're gonna open up for Q&A. Before one second, can we see the people? I mean, I mean, we're, I mean can we see people though? There were a thousand people. I mean, I just feel like, why can't we all put our, um, um, take it off of mute and hum David's name? I, I mean, let's talk about the collective. Maybe we can. How do we somehow break beyond the barriers, if you will, of Zoom and to speak or be able to yell his name or to sing, you know, to, to drink in the wholeness of that thousand people, as Frank Mank mentioned? Make, make a joy, joyful noise. Yeah. They can do it because I think that would be really nice. I think we've all been kind of holding in 
all of this feeling about David for the last three, what I don't even know what month it is anymore, five months. So yeah, this you, is uh, the first time we can actually engage in a memorial in a way. Yes. Yeah. So, but let's so, uh, and let's bring in the let's bring in our our just bring in the girls and time <laughs> and answer some questions from the audience. And I think our our first question from the audience is actually is for Julie, um, and it is: Can you please share your thoughts on the importance of nature? on David's work and his spirituality. I've always felt like he was a healer at heart. Mm. And he was. Uh, sure, thank you for the question. I, it comes up in my recorded remarks um, as well, but nature was a giver of life. And for the spiritual person that David Driscoll was, it was the same kind of gift that came from the divine that enabled artists to create whatever they chose to create. So there was a, a way in which the creativity of an artist was very much mirrored by what the what nature gave. He also came into uh, our garden and Keith, you were there that time when he pointed out all of the things that were poisonous. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I remember that. I remember that him doing that very often. <laughs> he used he to make He always things. used the Latin or Greek yeah. names that nobody understood. So you have to take his word for it that those are the real names. So we never knew whether he was telling the truth. Absolutely, no idea. I mean, smell, let me tell you how it smells and whatever. It is. <laughs> Than a wet napkin, put in a plastic bag, and took it home and planted it. Yeah, that day and brought it in just to impress us. Okay, <laughs> question for Alvia. Um, Alvia, can you talk about a mentor who was important to Dr. Driscoll? A mentor who was important to Dr. Driscoll, um, certainly in my mind, it would be James Porter because I feel that I in so many, yeah. In so many ways, Professor Porter kind of, as I said earlier, created a, a roadmap of discovery for this student, this very um, curious um, young man who wanted to learn so much about his own culture. And I think he found that at Howard, and he certainly found that in the person of James Porter, who also contributed the great tone, modern Negro art, which just created for all of us, you know, a, a, a sense of discovery about our own culture. And for David, that led him in so many different directions. And I just have to say, um, in that sense, I've enjoyed hearing so much the remarks of all of the artists, because you've all brought that sense of, um, how um, David was a mentor to me. So I'm looking at this, you know, as, as creating bridges. Um, and he was so thoughtful in laying out everything for all of us. And I think that's what he has left us, you know, this, this vision and this, um, I still see his beautiful script as um, Curly had mentioned earlier, you know, there's just that sense of detail that he had. And um, 
it never left him. And, and we've been graced with all of the work that he's done. So and he was an amazing mentor to so many of us. And I think for him, um, I would point to James Porter as being a great mentor. I would agree. I would agree. There's a and Dorothy, and Dorothy, his wife. Yes. They they together really created such an amazing um, legacy that he walked within and and made his own. So he was very thoughtful about how he um, crafted what what the next chapter would be. And that really started not only with with James Porter, but with Dorothy Porter, who Absolutely. was an amazing archivist. Someone asked, how would he have known to keep everything? Well, he was trained by the best. You know, she ran the Spin Garden Center, the Moreland Spin Garden Center. I mean, she was a librarian and an archivist. So he was taught by the very best. He not only uh, was mentored as a student, but uh, he would tell me how Porter and others would teach him how to talk about how to dress, how to present Absolutely. yourself, pack your clothes for travel. Right. They did everything to prepare David for his uh, destiny. Yeah, absolutely. Also, 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 Dorothy was the one that took an interest in him when he first came to Howard. She was the one that uh, helped him get into school. That's right. You know, I mean, you know, it must be sort of a, an extraordinary thing. You know, it, it, what happens uh, when a person it must happen very young when you understand that you have a purpose and that you have a mission and that this man, um, along with his wife, Thelma, because she was every bit a part of it, um, but, but he stepped into this role as I think Lyle was sort of talking about earlier. David is a, a extraordinary person, but he's a man within his time and within context, yeah. that he came out of something, that he was yeah. trying to do something that was extraordinary and that he was willing to put his life on the line for what he believed. He was willing to put his work aside in a way, his, his <laughs> personal work, his artistic work, that the most important thing was that there was something bigger about the culture that needed to be understood, that he could be fit in but at the end of the day, we think of him much more as this sort of impresario than we do as an individual artist, right? That currently that he has a show coming, I think is great. But I think that there's something more about, you know, understanding the legacy, the sense of legacy, the sense of purpose, the sense of mm -hmm. mission, the, the, the moral obligation, and that he was able to hold all of those things in balance while he was both a husband and a father and a teacher and a mentor and a curate is, is, pretty, is pretty special. But that Porter was there, that Alan Locke was there, that Du Bois was there, that there were other, that there were other entities that he could also draw on, knowing that he could create a space for us, as Mary has often said, that he could widen the path for us. Mm -hmm. It's one of his greatest gifts, and I am deeply indebted to the man. I think those dirt roads were there 
and he codified it in a way. He laid the concrete down. I mean, the pathways were made by Elaine Locke and James Porter, and they gave him the possibility and the material to lay that concrete down. And he endeavored to do exactly that and to create new stretches of road that he passed on to us to continue to do. Again, the history of African-American creative expression was never really codified before you get to books about the new modern Negro. You don't, you know, the new Negro and, and uh, modern art, the Negro and modern art, you don't have anything prior to that. That's yeah. why catalogs, we don't even talk about David's involvement with publications and how he yeah. made opportunities for young scholars through the Pomegranate publication series. He brought in mm -hmm. young scholars mm -hmm. to do mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Tremendous. I'm one of them. Tremendous. Yeah. Yes. That was a Tremendous. great honor to be asked by David to, to do the biography of Charles Alston. So yeah. his, his, his openness about creating opportunities for so many. Well, so I was Elaine Locke and, and Porter. I think one of the things that Mr. Driscoll was able to was to bridge um, uh, those deep, deep arguments, those those two camps out of which Alain Locke and and Mr. Porter and others fought. But Driscoll was seemed to be able to yeah to put it together so that other people could use both sides of that that argument. And this wasn't always just intellectual for David, it was intuitive. I used to ask him all the time, why you? Why David Driscoll? Mm -hmm. And I think he was, in connection to what Carrie had raised, he was a certain kind of person at a certain moment. And there mm -hmm. was this intersection. And he was prepared for that moment, prepared mm -hmm. to be dedicated, to sacrifice. And more importantly, when we look at it, the Driscoll Center, to that level of scholarship, that was David burning the midnight oil, studying that material, finding material that had been buried. That was David alone in that practice. Well, I think he, more than most people, um, understood the, the power of, of teaching someone who's going to continue in the field. You know, he talked a lot about replenishing the field. I mean, I, I think that there's just so few people who have that kind of foresight. Um, to understand that um, not only is it is it my responsibility to teach you, but it's your responsibility to find the four people or five people that you're going to teach mm -hmm. and pass that on to them. And um, I, I think it's so rich because then you think about the continuum and how big it is. Yeah, and he's, he's, not, he's not only is he living it, but he he's, he can teach it. He can say, well, it was, it was this person, and then after that, there was this person. And, and to fit yourself into that continuum is, is a powerful thing. And it's great to see how contemporary artists are really empowered by that history. I have students, speaking of that legacy, think that he, that they know him because, I'm sorry, I'm gonna finish, but-, but I think Sarah wants to moderate. <laughs> okay, but I'm just saying that, that he, what he taught me, I taught others and, and it was that real. I, I yeah. think that's what I'm talking about, girl. That's the important takeaway and the segue into the last and final question because we do want to leave time for a little moment of thoughtful memory of David. So 
I want to ask the last question to Valerie, which is a big question, and maybe we'll just have Valerie answer it, and then we'll 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 move into just like a moment to recognize David more directly. And Valerie, this is a heavy question, um, but someone from the audience has asked, how how do we push Dr. Driscoll's legacy forward? And uh, that is the question. That is the question. That is the question. Well, we do by, by what he did. He led by example and he endeavored to be a servant. And oftentimes people get very fixated on self and aggrandizement and rewards and celebration of self. And David was really not about that. He endeavored in the field. He was a servant understanding that we're building this repository we're building this legacy and it is our responsibility and it should be our great joy to be doing the work, to be able to do the work. So I think we honor him and we continue to build that legacy by simply doing the work. That is the best way to honor that legacy. And as so many people stated, be the bridge, be a part of the bridge that continues that long trajectory. That's what we need to be endeavoring in this moment. I think we get very much, um, um, you know, that disconnect. I think we've lost so much um, because a lot of people have various opportunities to go to different universities. And that legacy that was passed on at these historical black colleges and universities have truly been lost. We've disrupted that. There's been a rupture and we need to find new ways and new tributaries to bring things back and radiate it further outward. But know that we are all endeavoring to build that repository. I think that is the best way to honor that legacy and build new legacies upon it. Thank you, thank you. Um, all right, so let's, let's take these words and kind of sit with them for one second. So we cannot actually all be in the same room. Our panel can't be in the room with all of the audience, but I still think Lyle is correct in, in, in asking us to take a moment to recognize David and his, his legacy and also this forward going legacy that we are all collectively building and need to charge forward in building. Um, so I don't know if we want to say his name or if we just want to have a moment of silence. Lyle, would you like to lead it? Oh, <laughs> okay. Um, I can lead us. Yeah. Um, let's take a moment of silence to honor the legacy of Uncle David, Professor Driscoll, scholar, mentor, friend, visionary, father, we honor you and the joy that you have brought to so many countless lives. The vision you have brought above Fallen Valley's point of laying down pathways to open up the spaces, both here, but also globally. We honor the scholarship you have given us the modeling of humility, but greatness. 
the joy of inner light, the joy of doing the work, the joy of practice, as Mary has said, in terms of the practice of doing your work, multiple works, the work of creating scholarship, the work of making your work, of painting, of giving life, of being a student at 88. Being a student when I saw your camera reams live, you know, with joy, you know, just the idea of being a custodian, but also continue to be open to what life offers you and us. We also affirm all the, the generations of artists and scholars that have come out and to speak to the present, but also to futurity, to echo what Valerie said in terms of going back to those institutions, fortify, but also to recognize the fact that we are in a much global, a much bro broader sense of history and that we are here and that we are, the, we are, there's a centrality to our vision and our lives that David has anointed us with. So um, we honor you, David, Uncle David. We call your name, my brother. Yeah, super duper maestro. We call your name, David Driscoll. Mr. Driscoll. We call your name. All of you for being here. Thank you for your work. Thank you for the work that we'll continue to do together. And I wish everyone a good night. Thank, Thank you. you, Sarah. Thank you so Thank much. You. So wonderful to see you all. Maybe we can reconvene this and continue where we left That's off. We should, we, should, we should make it to have a post-COVID dinner. That's what we should do. Yeah, that, absolutely. At the Driscoll Center. <laughs> <laughs>